Alrighty, so, uh, John is the only one who is absolved from this, because John has been doing Peter Pan things, um, but, um, but remember that I said to you last week um, that I was going to approach the book of Hebrews tonight, and we were going to look at Hebrews from a slightly different angle. And do you remember what I asked you to do? I said, uh, try to read the book of Hebrews as if it was an Old Testament letter. Okay, as if the New Testament wasn't written yet. Did any of you do that? Okay. Who, can you put your hands up so I can get some encouragement here? All right. Susan. Susan. All right. That's Okay. Um, any of you, uh, did it kind of give you an interesting other angle when you did that, when you read it like that? Do you think it, it helped somewhat or raised other questions in your mind? What, what kind of uh, experience did you have from doing that? Just uh, share a, lot, a few of your experiences. Help me to not throw in Christian point of view into the text. I tried to read it just right. Okay, so okay, so what what kind of things did it throw up for you? That that the writer is talking about three types of Jews. I think. I mean, three different groups. Okay, you identify three groups. Yeah, uh-huh. Just kind of like Jewish believers, mm-hmm. believer Christians, Jewish Christians. Mm-hmm. Others that were, are Jewish, but they and they they got the gist of it here. They got okay, it. yeah. And the third was they're Jewish, but they say they kind of get it, but they don't get it. I mean, I, I don't have. All right, no, 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 that's okay. Types. Okay. Right. That you you got anyone else? Paul? Very. There's a very strong emphasis on the priesthood, isn't there? Okay. Another thing. That's very good. Connection between the Levitical priesthood, the old priesthood, and the new covenant with Christ. Okay. That's a that's a key element that comes in around about chapter six. Yeah. Um, Paul, anything? It, it was very interesting and it raised a whole lot more questions than answers. Uh, there are parts of it I felt like I was reading the book of Revelation almost. Isn't that interesting? And parts of it. If I tried to, and it was hard to do to exclude yes. the New Testament. That's yes, because there are passages in there. Christ is mentioned. And I thought so. I understood it. Now I'm, I'm sure I don't. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I do either, quite honestly. Um, but I think I do, um, which is an arrogant thing to say. But let's let's see. Um, For me, it was yes, Melchizedek. Melchizedek, yes, yes. Just who is this Melchizedek? And and Abraham tithed to him. Yes. And yeah, he's an important he guy. He was the one who had the covenants, and yet um, he was blessed. Yes. And so Melchizedek was. Was higher, right. yeah, than yeah, Abraham. Yeah. That's an interesting thing, yeah. isn't it? So, 
that was intriguing. That is intriguing. Yeah, it raises some interesting questions. Well, is this Jesus? No, no, because it says he's made like unto the Son. Yes. Yeah, very good. Well, he's uh, you know, there's been a lot of literature on the identity of Melchizedek. I I think most of it useless, but (laughs) um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting. One of the the terms that we hear a lot today is, you know, segue, you know, know, sportscasters and newscasters, that's a great segue, you know, in that regard, though, Hebrews is really an amazing segue between the Old and the New Testament. What an interesting thing for you to say. It's got, Hmm. you know, because it's addressing Jews primarily who are really kind of struggling with their faith and trying to evaluate Christ in light of all of the Old Testament history and culture and theology they've got and uh-huh. then you know the author whoever that might be just pulls in all of these old testament you know scriptures from all the different books i mean it's replete with that so uh-huh. it, it's a great segue and a great you know okay uh, transition from the one uh-huh. old testament covenants to the okay new that's in, that's interesting yeah. that's interesting <laughs> Mariana's just come in. She made it. Did she, did you? Uh, so we'll just drop us straight in it. <laughs> um, so did you? Uh, did you manage to read he- Hebrews uh, the way that we? I've read it in the past. <laughs> All right. So yeah, okay. So two of you together there. So Susan, you were, you were saying what? I said, Ken, I agree with him. It's the how it was built up on the old, and then how it's. All right. Okay. Cheryl, do you have anything to say? All right. So, okay. Um, Why do this? I've not been as generous as this before, have I? Actually, asking for your opinions on things. (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm usually the you know the big know-it-all here in the at the front. Though I'm not, I'm just trying to get through the material. But uh, I, I've done that because what we're going to try to do tonight, and, and I hope that we can get through quite a bit of it tonight, is to come at the book of Hebrews from a slightly different angle um, and just kind of pause, put the brakes on a bit on what we think it's talking about. And um, try to view it in more continuity with the Old Testament, with, in fact, Israel itself, okay? If we, uh, if we focus here on Israel and Jews, what's another, way, another name for Jews? Hebrews. Hebrews, oh, very good. Um, we might get something more out of this. I, I think, uh, was it Paul's uh, remark that it reminded him more of the book of Revelation? Um, it becomes a very prophetic book. Okay, it, it, it seems to be focusing on the end, on the kingdom. Yes, it seems to be, um, you know, trying to get people in line because the kingdom's coming. And so that's kind of the angle that we want to try and explore a bit tonight. 
excuse me, without me plunging everybody here into heresy, um, let's let's um, let's understand this first: that the you you lose no Christian truth by going the way that I am going to go tonight. Okay. Christ has died for you, Christ is a high priest, all of that stuff, Old Covenant, New Covenant, you know, you're in the New Covenant. There's none of that stuff, you're not going to lose any of that. Okay? But, you may have some answers um, to some questions that uh, you've wondered about, like, why the Hebrews? Why is this written to the Hebrews? What's so good about them? Uh, after all, in, we, we've studied the church, and in the church there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Do you see? I mean, it's supposed to be one new man, isn't it? Come together. Ephesians 2. We studied that. So, why is he, this writer going off to the Hebrews? Uh, another question is, what about those passages that seem to say that you can lose your salvation? Aren't they in conflict with Paul? Aren't they in conflict with Jesus' own words? What do we do with those? The third one, which you wouldn't know so much unless you uh, had really studied the commentaries or you know, you'd know you really done more of an exegetical structural study of the book, is that um, the, uh, the writer of the Hebrews is a very deliberate writer. He's very structured. Uh, there have been some very important work done uh, on Hebrews in the last 30 years. Uh, one by a Roman Catholic scholar by the name of Albert Van Hoy, who of course is a very recognisable name. Everyone's heard of him. Uh, and an evangelical scholar called George Guthrie uh, also has done some very important work on the book of Hebrews. Uh, looking at... The, the way that the writer puts together his arguments and how carefully he structures his arguments moves from one idea to another idea and connects the ideas together. He uses uh, the most, it's not highbrow, but it's the most highbrow Greek in the New Testament. Uh, this, this guy knows Greek well and uses it very well. Uh, remember that, that Greeks were very concerned with, with rhetoric. They were very concerned with getting your point, getting your reasoning across. And this man shows familiarity with that form, the forms of rhetoric and the, uh, the ways of getting your meaning across to people. All of this means that... Um, that we can't, when we come across a passage we don't like, we can't say, well, he's being a little bit obscure or he's going off on a, you know, a little bit of a rabbit trail like the Apostle Paul does. Paul's good, good for going off on rabbit trails. You know, he does it quite a few times, actually. Um, he's, his meaning is, is there, but sometimes you have to really kind of circumnavigate with him in order to get his point. This writer is not like that. This writer is very deliberate. So, the fact that he writes to the Hebrews, I think, is very significant. Straight away, someone will object. Yes, 
But uh, don't you know, Henry, that uh, the, uh, the superscriptions, the titles, were not on the original manuscripts? Do you see? Haven't we heard Bart Ehrman argue that? Okay. To which I say, poppycock. All right. First of all, you don't know that. Um, nobody's seen the original manuscripts. But secondarily, uh, it has been shown by numerous scholars, and Martin Hengel, I'm, not, I'm just throwing out a few names here because we've got the camera on. Martin Hengel, and there's a great book by Brant Pitrie called The Case for Jesus. He's a Roman Catholic scholar, but it's an excellent book. Um, and uh, they have done some good work and provided evidence to show that there is a very good chance that the original letters of Paul and the Gospels, particularly the Gospels that we're referring to, and in fact all the letters, would have had a, a title. I mean, it kind of stands to reason, doesn't it? Now, that you've, If you're going to write something like this, and it's kind of expensive to write these things, Okay, well, it takes a lot of effort. Uh, you're not going to put a title on it? They did in the ancient world. They put titles on their books. They put titles uh, you know, on their letters and so on. So it would be an unusual thing not to have titles. Um, so for that reason, I think there is absolutely no reason to, to question the title to the epistle to the Hebrews. And the first thing then we ask, therefore, is that if it's written to the Hebrews, um, that means, or it might mean, it's not written to the church. It might mean that. Okay? Just kind of forewarning you out there. So, with that in mind, let's start off. Uh, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. Who do you think the fathers are? The patriarchs. See, straight away, what are we on? We're on patriarchs and we're on prophets. Who do you think the prophets are? Clearly, these are Old Testament prophets. We're back in the Old Testament straight away. Has in these last days, or the end, it's really the end of the ages. Some of you have a footnote maybe on that. Okay, the, the, the end of the ages, in these last days, spoken to us by his Son. Now, does this mean spoken to us through the Gospels? Or does it mean spoken to us by Jesus himself, and this person was a witness to Jesus actually <coughs> speaking? If that's the case... Is Hebrews written to Hebrews in Israel who were alive 25 years plus previous to this? It would have been well, 28, 30 years. Uh, and heard Jesus speak. Well, that's, that's a possibility, isn't it? Um... But I told you it's written in really good Greek, which would seem to uh, speak more to a Hellenistic Greek or, or uh, audience, even though uh, it is true that Greek was spoken 
and written uh, in Israel during the time of Jesus. It certainly was. So. Um, or maybe there's something else as well. I want you to keep that in mind. In, at the end of the ages or in these last days, are the last days that the kind of the time from Jesus' death to when he's talking about and of course pushing all the way through to today, possibly, or is it because it's not, it really isn't the last days, it's at the end of these days. Focusing on the end. Is it talking about the end times? And how, if that's the case, how has, how has God spoken through his son? That's a question that might, we might want to think about. Now he talks about the preeminence of Christ, whom he has appointed heir of all things, heir of all things. This is the man, Jesus, through whom also he made the worlds. So, God created the worlds through Christ and he is, he is the inheritor of creation who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, reflecting God's person exactly, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Who does that? Well, we're talking here about the Son. The Son upholds all things by the word of his power and that's what Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 tells us. By him all things consist. Hold together. When he had by himself purged our sins, that's the cross, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, that's the ascension. Okay, so that's the, the person of Christ as he's presented in the prologue to Hebrews. And look how much material he gets through in just three verses. Okay? He knows how to communicate this guy. You have um, the fact that he's the, the word. Uh, he's the, the heir of all, verse 2. Co-creator, glory of God, image of God. He's the sustainer. He's the sole redeemer. And he's also the inheritor. Uh, the inheritance in verse 4, having become so much better than the angels as he has inherit by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? That's a quotation from Psalm 2 verse 7. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm and it talks about the kingdom, very much about the kingdom. So, what covenant, therefore, would be alluded to through this quotation, do you think? The Davidic. And again, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. Uh, that comes from Second Samuel chapter 7. Do you know what happens in Second Samuel chapter 7? Do you want to look at that? Well, someone... Call it out. Uh, 
Uh-huh. What else happens then? Ah, which covenant? The Davidic covenant. Again, do you see? So here, the first two quotations focus on the Davidic covenant. So the focus is, is and the Davidic covenant is all about the throne, is all about the kingdom. Notice that, please. And then it goes into these, uh, these contrasts between angels and Christ. And in verse 8, it says, To the Son, he says, Your throne, Psalm 45, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. See the word scepter there? Okay, that the scepter is mentioned in, in Genesis 49. I think it's verse 10. To do with the prophecy of the scepter shall not depart from Judah until he comes to whom it uh, is given. And Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24. And uh, I think it's verse 9, but I can't remember now. But that, that even quotes, part of that even quotes Genesis 49. Balaam even quotes Jacob. It's really a pretty amazing thing about the crouching lion. Uh, so, what's the focus here again? Scepter, kingdom. Do you see? Right off the bat, in Hebrews chapter 1, the focus is on the kingdom. But it's also, of course, on the deity. The identity of the Son is your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Well, the throne that's forever and ever is in the Old Testament what? That's the throne of the promised seed. That's the, the Messiah's throne. That's the promised one. Uh, the branch. Do you see? And verse 10, And you, Lord... In the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. And, uh, well, the focus here is to the Son, verse 8, do you see? And he's already said that God made the worlds through him, so here creation, the whole idea of creation is being uh, focused on the Son. Remember that because of what we've said about the creation project and what I, I've tried to bring out to you about the centrality of Christ to the whole picture, making sense of the whole picture. Because he created it, because it was, or he, it was created through him, because it was given to him, it's his, he's the heir of all things here, because he, uh, he died in it, he's the one also inherits, inherits it. Do you see? So the whole of the Bible story is Christological in this sense. And this is what he's telling you. And just, I mean, he's not gone very far. But you can gather all of this stuff together in the way that he's picked his, um, his passages together. And in verse 13, it says, um, quoting from Psalm 110, which is a very important psalm, uh, it's a messianic psalm, it's a kingdom psalm, but it also doesn't just talk about the kingdom, it also talks about the priesthood, as we will see. Sit at my right hand till 
I make your enemies your footstool. Well, after he's done that, Christ will reign, do you see? Chapter 2, we get our first warnings. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. That could be said to a church, because uh, a church is not a static body. Yes? So Paul writes things like that in, say, Ephesians 5, 5 and other places. He can warn people about uh, that. He warns the Galatians, different churches in Galatia, that they may fall from grace. Do you see? He's not talking to individuals, he's talking to the churches that they're teaching, by introducing this false teaching, they will fall from grace, fall away from the message of grace. Do you see? They will apostatize, in other words, and churches do. So it's possible, you know, that, that this is uh, this is church. But he he goes in an interesting direction here. Let's look. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape? if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Confirmed to us by those who heard him. That means that they didn't hear Christ. Verse 2. Do you see? So that one's out, isn't it? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For he has not put the world to come. Ooh. Now we're in eschatological um, themed theme, aren't we? We're, we're in uh, the eschatology. The world to come. Notice that, because he's already mentioned the end of these ages of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, quoting from Psalm 8, think of the creation project as I go through this. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Who's that talking about? Is it talking about Christ or is it talking about man? Mankind generally. If you look in Psalm 8 and you look here, it's actually, I think it's talking about mankind generally. Mankind generally. Okay? For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now, we do not yet see all things put under him. So, where is he focusing here? He's calling our attention to the future. There's a purpose that God had in mind, verse 6, in creating man. Setting him over the works of his hands. He is below angels right now, but he's going to be above angels. And that agrees with St. Paul. I mean, Paul says, uh, know you not that we will judge angels in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So that fits, doesn't it? 
But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. So, what we're seeing here, if, if uh, I've got this right, it's not just me. I mean, don't think I'm just... Yeah, I do go out in the left field sometimes and I'll tell you when I'm doing that. But um, uh, look at the connection he's made, making and look at the, uh, uh, the clarity of his argument. It's a great argument. He talked about man first and how he's made lower than the angels, but he's made for glory and honor, but he's not yet got it. But now we see Jesus, who, of course, was above this because he's God, chapter 1, He's the inheritor of all things, chapter 1, but he becomes one of us. He's made lower than the angels. Do you see? So that's a connection between mankind and Christ. For suffering of death crowned with glory and honour. Yes, he is crowned with glory and honour. We're not. Because he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And uh, talks about how people will be made perfect through Christ's work. So that's giving you a pretty clear synopsis here of the work of Christ on our behalf. We will be glorified because Christ came to die for our sins. He became one of us. Died for our sins. He was made lower than the angels too. But he's been glorified above the angels as a man and therefore we will be too. And then it talks about uh, him not being afraid to declare us brethren. Verse 12. Uh, Coming down here to um, verse 16, chapter 2, it says, For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of of Abraham. All right. Now he's using this term "seed of Abraham" in the same way that Paul does, for example, in Galatians three twenty-nine. Is that what he's referring to there? Possibly, but possibly because this is written to Hebrews. If it's written to Hebrews and Hebrews are reading it, they might think in more Old Testament terms, possibly. We're the seed of Abraham as Israelites, do you see? Again, don't, um, if you, you don't want to follow that, that logic, you don't have to. I'm just asking you to think about it. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. Now, of course, we apply that to ourselves and we can apply it to ourselves, folks. But I'm asking you to also remember this isn't written to you. Because you're not a Hebrew, unless you're a replacement theologian. Chapter 3. Therefore, my holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Okay. Partakers of the calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, that would be God, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. So here now you're going to get Christ and Moses. 
and he's going to develop this argument. Moses, of course, represents the, or will come to represent the old covenant. Christ will come to represent a new covenant later on in the in his argument. At the moment, he's doing a contrast between the two, and he's telling you that Moses didn't build his own house. He says this, um, verse 3, For this one had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house is more honoured than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Well, because he's God, he has more honour than Moses. Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, but as you know, but for a testimony to those things which should be spoken of afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And again, you can apply that to yourself as a Christian, but doctrinally, look at the end. What's the end, do you think? Could be the same thing as the apostles asked Jesus in Matthew 24. What's the sign of the end of the age? And Jesus said, you know, uh, he talk, started talking about the end, the end, the end is not yet, and so on. Yes? Think about that. Notice if. Notice the if there. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers... Well... He, these are Hebrews' fathers, yes. Our fathers? Folks, our fathers didn't march through the wilderness because we're not Israelites. I don't think there's any Jews here, but if there is, then that's fine. But I don't think there are any here. So these aren't really our fathers, are they? But they are, if you are Hebrew. Well, your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my way. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. And they didn't. And he goes on to talk about that. At the end of the chapter there, it talks about the fact that uh, the ones who didn't believe... Did not enter the rest, verse 18. Their corpses were in the wilderness, verse 17. What's the rest there? What's the rest? The promised land. The promised land, very good. The promised land, remember that. It's talking about the wilderness wanderings, the people that disobeyed and were disobedient, their corpses fell in the wilderness, they were you know, trudging through the desert and the wilderness for 40 years, and only those who were 20 and under got through, and of course, just a couple of faithful ones. So, then he says this, look, Beware, verse 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now he's getting, you see, he's talking individually to people. In any of you in departing from the true God. 
they're going in the right way, but then depart, there's a threat of departing, do you see? Keep that in mind. Just keep it in mind. But you exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ. That's true. Christ has died by the time, and risen again by the time Hebrews has been written. So that's true. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. I remind you, in Matthew 24, Jesus said, I think verse 13 and verse 15, He that endures to the end shall be saved. And that's written to who? Yeah, who, he, him that, if you see the abominations of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, uh, let uh, the reader understand, then let he that is in Judea flee to the mountains. Do you see? And verse 19 warns about unbelief. Chapter 4. Therefore, since the promise remains, remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Well, are you, I mean, unless, I know some of you, one or two of you might believe that a person can lose their salvation, and that's fine, I don't want to challenge that. But, even those of you that might believe that, and Les, I know, holds to that, but, but, you're not really concerned about losing your salvation, you're not really concerned about fearing losing your salvation, you, you would believe that, look, if I deliberately turn my back on Christ and deliberately walk away, then there's a possibility of losing it. Yes? But you wouldn't think, well, I better watch myself every day. You know, that way. But that seems to be the kind of thing that's being uh, spoken of here. Beware! lest you uh, depart, he says in uh, chapter 3. So, And he's talking about entering rest. Well, is entering rest entering heaven? Possibly. Possi- well, I'm just saying possibly, because that's how most people would interpret it. But he hasn't spoken about heaven. What he has given you is Davidic covenant language. So remember that. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them. Okay, so they, they, were, they were told that Jesus Christ would die on the cross for their sins and rise again. Did, were they? Was that the gospel that was preached in the Old Testament? No. Gospel simply means good news, folks. Okay, don't think everywhere you read gospel, it means 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. I remind you that you don't read that anywhere in the Gospels. Apart from Jesus saying that he would, secretly, that he was going to do that and then telling him, or either not believing him, or telling him that that would never be. Neither of those are very good credentials for actually believing the Gospel, are they? You see? 
So the, you have to understand the Greek doesn't say gospel, it says euangelion, it just means good news. And it could be the promised land. Yeah, well, that's what I'm trying to get you to think of, yes. Possibly, possibly. Uh, why was it promised land? Why is it called the promised land? The covenant, exactly. We're in covenantal territory here, do you see? The Abrahamic covenant. All right, so... Um, just, again, I know that, that I'm asking you to suspend judgment somewhat I'm asking you to think on a different kind of a track but uh, just keep I mean just humor me okay because I'm enjoying myself <laughs> so verse 2 for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them but the word which they heard did not profit them not being mixed with faith in those who heard it for now the, the good news that they um, were told was we're going to a land of uh, milk, and milk and honey which wouldn't have been good news to me because I can't stand either of them <laughs> but <laughs> I will when I get there yeah but uh, you know if it had been the land of chocolate and yeah. apple pie I'd have been there but, <laughs> but uh, anyway um, but that's what they were told going to a literal place that was the good news deliverance and going to a place do you see but they didn't, didn't mix it with faith. And faith was needed. For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day, in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. So he's focusing now on the Sabbath. Therefore, sorry, sorry, since therefore, verse 6, it remains that some must enter it. What is this rest though? That's, we haven't quite got that answer yet. And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Folks, these people to whom the message, the gospel, what he calls the gospel in verse 2, was preached, that gospel was not that Jesus died on the cross. They wouldn't have understood that in 1400 BC. The only Jesus they knew about was the leader of Israel, Joshua. So, he says here, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David today, after such a long time as it has been said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Whose voice? God. Can I remind you how the epistle opens? In this, these last days, He's spoken to us by his son. Just again, remember that. I know that you feel like you, you're uh, juggling a, about six balls in the air at the uh, present time, but just keep them going, okay? <clears throat> Verse 8. For if Joshua, 
that's Joshua. I mean, the Joshua of the book of Joshua. If Joshua had given them rest, then they would not look, not afterward have spoken of another day. So the rest that is being spoken of here, Joshua didn't give them. There's another rest that they're going into. The question is, is it the same people group? Joshua less, uh, led a bunch of Israelites. I mean, there are some hangers-on. But Israelites into the promised land. This is written to Hebrews. Is the focus, uh, is he giving a parallel here? You didn't quite get what you wanted back then. So I'm urging you to get, you know, get behind the plan this time and do better. Or is it just talking about the church? Possibly. Possibly. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. Well, if we, we did Romans chapter 11, you know that, that uh, there is a remnant, okay, of Israel who are the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Do any of you have a different kind of translation in verse 11? Make every effort. Make every effort to enter the rest. I mean, you're really, in, you know, you're really having to go for it. Folks, you're saved by grace. You're kept saved by grace. Okay? Your, whether you enter into rest or not is not all about your effort. Okay? It's not. Christ's effort. You're not saved by works, are you? You're saved by faith and faith is recommended here and yet there's also something added here that's something very close to, you know, you better watch yourself. You get, better get doing here. Do you see? Yeah, they had to walk, they had to get with them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, again, just, uh, we're early days, but just keep it in mind. Are you, are you laboring to enter rest? Yes. I'm not. Yeah, but are you laboring? Are you laboring to enter rest? No, I'm not laboring to enter rest, folks. I mean, I if I labor, it's because my rest has been won by Christ. Yeah. It's out of gratitude for Christ and, and yielding to the Holy Spirit. But I'm not laboring to enter rest. I'm laboring for Christ because I love him. Mm-hmm. Why did right. Paul say then that he hoped he would attain to the first resurrection? If by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead, in Philippians chapter three, well, he was, is that right? It sounded to me like he was afraid that he, well, not afraid, but he said that he would 
was hoping that he would make it to the first resurrection. No, he doesn't say that. Okay, okay but in it's Philippians, Philippians it's Philippians 3. And in Philippians 3, he's talking here about, uh, in that context, uh, he's trying to get us, uh, he's not talking about n- not making it, he's talking about apprehending it, mm. understanding the resurrection. Yes. Attaining it, attaining a proper understanding of it. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That I may know that stuff, you see. Yes. Um, So, moving on. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. It's disobedience or obedience, folks. It's disobedience or obedience that's being focused on here. Uh, I, I won't do it because I'd have to confess myself. But how many of us are really obedient? Very obedient to God. Yeah, it's not, I mean, obedience is not easy and, uh, you know, it's, you kind of put your half, your hand half up, don't you? Uh, you know, anyone who says, yeah, I'm obedient to God, you know, you, you think, oh, yeah, right. So, so, here's the thing, I find myself being disobedient to God a great deal. Why am I not, you know, Sweating buckets over this thing. Well, it's because I've read Paul, that's why. Because I know I'm secure in Christ. I know I'm, you know, Ephesians 4 says I'm bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. I'm not in Adam, and I'm in Christ. I have the Holy Spirit, I have deposit in me. And I must be, uh, come before the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, that my works will be rewarded. Not my... Of sins. I mean, the sins have been judged already on the cross. You see, the theology of of the cross persuades me that I'm in Christ. I'm I'm in union with Him. I can't be not in union with Him. You see, God's building His church, not tearing it apart, which He'd have to. You know, if if He really looked past Christ and at us. As uh, for what we are. Paul, is this, a, is this an issue in Christendom? You make it you sound like this is really a, people are struggling with resting. No, well, all I'm saying is that that all Christians struggle with obeying. Okay, but here you got to it's obedience, disobedience. Um, if this, if I thought this was me, I I wouldn't be able to tell you really how I'm doing on this. You know, because I kind of disobey just as much as I obey, maybe a bit more. So I'm not sure how I am on the uh, salvation scale when it comes to verses like this, do you see? But anyway, it talks about the Word of God and, and its power and, and uh, the way that it prizes open our motives and our attitudes and so on. And it talks about the fact that we do have, though, a high priest, Jesus, the Son of God who sympathizes. Why does he sympathize? He sympathizes because he was made like us, a little lower than the angels. And so we can go to him boldly, verse 16, to the throne of grace to obtain mercy 
and find grace and to help in time of, of need. Verse 18 of chapter 2 says about the same thing. Okay, We can go to him for help. Or they can go to him for help. Chapter 5. Now it goes on into the high priest. You see how he's connecting subjects. Okay, He's now taken us to the high priesthood again. He's really smart in the way that he joins ideas together and brings the argument together. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. And uh, then it talks about this honor being given, not to any man, but to Aaron, verse 4. Christ now has become our high priest and then he goes to Psalm 110. Okay, you are, verse 6, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So now it's focused on the fact that he said that Christ is a high priest, yes? But now what kind of a high priest is he? Well, he's not a Levitical one. He's a high priest according to the, the Melchizedekian priesthood. Well, in Psalm 110, that's a Davidic psalm. Jesus quoted it to the scribes and the Pharisees. You know, that you remember when they were questioning him, and then he says, well, I will ask you a question too, okay? Uh, whose son is he? You know, David said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. Who does he speak of? Himself or someone else? It says it's his son. You see, they didn't and they they wouldn't answer that because they understood and and, uh, there's been scholarship that has shown that in that time, in the first century and a little bit before, that psalm, 110, was quoted a lot as a messianic psalm. They understood that Jesus was uh, was claiming to be that individual. So, what was the focus? Davidic throne. And yet, you also have this priesthood in the same psalm. Remember in Zechariah chapter 6, for those of you that were, can remember that far back, you have a person who unites the throne and the priesthood together he's the branch he's called the branch (coughs) so talks about him suffering and so on and uh, he says verse 9 having been perfected he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him there's the obedience called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing and then he has a go at them and says I'm going to have trouble teaching you this stuff because you guys haven't done enough work yourselves. Okay, This is one of those great passages where somebody like me you know, can really have a go at the congregation and have a go at the churches. I'm not going to right here. Um, but But you understand it takes work to become mature in the word, okay? 
and um, you know, let's be honest. Let's be honest. Most people in our churches are babies, and they they are saved as babies and they die as babies. Okay, they have some experiences, they get some maturity, but as far as really getting a grasp of things, grasp of the word and a grasp of you know uh, the wisdom in the word, they're babies. Uh, Peter says, let us desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow by it. Well, I don't see a lot of desire for the word in a lot of people. So you look at the bestsellers list and Christian bestsellers and it's, you know, all this um, you know, lovey-dovey stuff, you know, this cowboy hunk or this other thing. What's going on? And it's got nothing to do uh, with this. It's got to do with with these flights of fancy, hasn't it? You know, I just kind of, I mean, it's not the women are just are not um, they're not the only ones who would do that. So men go off and and they they read stuff that you know uh, it's just feel good stuff, yeah. It's just fluffy stuff, yeah. So. But it's not, it's not growing them. It's not this. It's not, it's not Bible studies. It's not, it's not commentaries. It's not theologies that a lot of these people are reading. Do you see? So, moving on then, having not said anything about that. Um, <laughs> therefore, leaving, I'll I, I remind you of this as well. Okay, I'll remind you of this. That, in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, at the end there, the, the, the beast uh, has a number. It's number 666. And it says, let he that has wisdom count the number of the beast. His number is 666. Um, you have to have wisdom. Yet wisdom by the fear of the Lord. You have to be able to count it. You have to, um, you know, be focused on God. Focused on serving God and the fear of God, otherwise you're not going to get it. Mm-hmm. So, well, no, it's, it's here. It's kind of uh, there's more than that going on, but that's the, that also is part of it. Yes. So, chapter six. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. That doesn't mean that actual, you know, perfection it means maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. That's a basic thing. Of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Uh, Those are interesting things to to list, aren't they? The doctrine of baptisms? Well, you know, there's one baptism as far as the church is concerned. And that is, well, there's two. There's baptism of the Holy Spirit and then there's the water baptism, isn't there? Um, but to Jews, there, there's John the Baptist baptism and then, you know, the spirit baptism that's been promised and then there are other baptisms too. Laying on of hands. Uh, well, the laying on of hands, that is practiced in the Old Testament, especially of anointing somebody. Resurrection of the dead, generally, notice that. Not the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of the dead generally, which is an Old Testament theme, and of internal judgment. This we will do if God permits, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened 
and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Okay. So, this is one of those tricky verses, isn't it? This is one of those verses where we're reading the book of Hebrews and we kind of, you know, we hop, skip and jump over this passage because it seems to conflict with what Paul says. And also what John says too. Notice what is being said. It's not saying that a person has just decided that they don't believe Jesus anymore. What's his focus is? He has spoken about unbelief, but he's spoken mainly about disobedience. Okay. Uh, here it says that they've entered into to some of this stuff, but then they've fallen away. And if you fall away, you're lost. You don't get a second chance. No second chances there. It's impossible to renew it again. Do you see that? You can't just backslide and in, um, repent and get it back again. You lose it. It's done. Do you see that? Now, when you put that together with some of the prior warnings, let us labor to enter into rest and so on, I hope you can see this is serious stuff. He's really trying to get them to keep obeying, keep following. Because if they fall away, they'll lose it. Well, Nazarenes use this to say that you can lose your salvation, but many Nazarenes say that you can get it back again. Well, this verse says you can't get it back again if if it really is applied to Christians. You can't. Do you see that? But look at, look at this list here. You've been enlightened, verse 4, tasted of the heavenly gift, uh, partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. All of those things can be said of a Christian. So is that talking to a Christian? Well, if it is, and you fall away, you're, you're damned. Have you ever, I mean, maybe there's some of you have backslidden, okay, gone away from God, not been concerned about God, and then you, you repented and you came back. And you are now a strong Christian, yes? And you've got, and you've got assurance of salvation and so on? Well, if this is written to Christians, you're lost. Okay? But you know you're not. You know you've been received back. Do you see? So what's this writer doing? Is he, is he teaching a different theology than Paul? Liberal scholars say he is. This is a passage that he will, that liberal scholars go to to say the New Testament, it's not, you know, it's not one clear message. It contradicts. And they will go to somewhere like here to show you that it will contradict. Well, I read this passage because you said to read this whole yes. book as if you were a 
Hebrew. <laughs> yes. And so when I looked at this passage in the light, and I was starting to think of, well, think of the Jews. Because, I mean, I know when I've read through Exodus and so on, and I see what they're doing, and I go, how can they do that? And then I, it's like I get this conviction, well, I'd do the same thing if I was with them. We would. We would do the same and thing, yeah. So I'm reading this like, you know, the Holy Spirit could come upon them and it could leave them. And so it's quite possible that maybe they are talking. He's talking about Jews here. Maybe. Maybe. Again, we've, we can't resolve on anything. And I'm happy just to keep things in the air at the moment. Um, <laughs> you know. Uh, <clears throat> it's Can you lose that which you already possess and come back and find it? No, according to this, it's impossible. My point, I guess my point is, if a person says that they've lost it, did they ever have it to begin with? Yeah, well, he said that they did have it. Did they have, okay. This is a Jew talking to a Jew. Is it kind of a Levitical type thing that they're talking about? I don't know. I'm not. Uh, if I answered that, then I wouldn't be having things up in the air. But I want them up in the air at the moment. <laughs> what I'm saying is that you, what you're asking is exactly the right question. And verses like this, they really don't help you because you can't you can't do what the Puritans did. You know, John Owen when he, uh, I mean, John Owen's got a, a seven volume. Commentary on Hebrew is a fantastic work. But, uh, you know, he talks about, oh, this isn't really written to those that possess it, because he thinks it's written to Christians. It's written to professors. But this doesn't say they're professors, it says they've actually partakers. Do you see? Arthur W. Pinks does the same thing in his Hebrews commentary. Many people does, do the same thing, but it doesn't say that. That's the problem. That's the, the predicament it puts you in. If this is a Christian, written to a Christian, and you fall away, you're lost. And very few Christians are willing to say that, particularly uh, those who believe that you can't lose your salvation, based on what Paul said. So, keep going. Illustration, verse 7. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs, that's what I say, herbs. I'm not repenting. (laughs) That is an H. Um, Herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives the blessing of God. What's what's receiving the blessing of God? Verse 7. Yeah, the, the earth, the cultivated earth, yeah? But, if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Do you get the illustration? Okay, alright. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. So, he's encouraging them, but the warning sticks, okay? 
For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. There it is again, until the end. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. What promises? Of entering into rest. Now he's going to talk about Abraham. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. That's from the Abrahamic covenant. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end to all dispute. What have I been telling you all through these courses? Covenants cannot be changed. Covenants have to mean what they say because if they don't mean what they say, they are not an end to disputes. They cause disputes. The only reason that a covenant can be agreed upon and stuck to is that it means what it says and both people understand what it says. Then it ends disputes. That's what a covenant's for. That's the, that's the very basic. So when God makes a covenant with Noah, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, when he makes a covenant with David, when he makes a covenant with Phineas, I mean, it ends the dispute. That's just the way it is. No ifs, ands, or buts. If he makes a covenant with you in the new covenant, it's the end of it. Do you see that? That's the end of it. Just the same as covenants made between Laban and Jacob, for example. Um, you know, when Jacob's fleeing with his wives and sheep and all that. When they make a covenant, that's it. Um, Isaac makes a covenant with um, the bloke whose name I can't remember now. Um, no. No, the guy when they're digging wells. Okay? Yeah. And that's the end of it. Then he says, I've got rest. The Lord's given me rest. After they made a covenant. I mean, that's what covenants do. So. And then 17 just confirms it. Just confirms God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. Yes. And I asked you right at the beginning, why does God make covenants? And I said, he makes covenants because they are reinforcements of plain speech. Okay? They're confirmations. They're saying, hey, I mean this, pay attention. And so, most of the church doesn't pay attention to the covenants. They might invent their own. Covenant theologians do that. They invent their own covenants instead of looking at what the ones God's uh, told them about. And then they fit God's covenants into their invented ones. Dispensationalists, they're more focused on dispensations than they are on covenants. So they miss the covenants. They don't focus on the covenants. They're focusing on, on dispensations. And we did that last time, didn't we? Problem, you see. That's him. Yeah. That by two immutable things, verse 18, in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor to, of the soul being sure and steadfast and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. There's that Psalm 110 thing again. Well, I know that, that you can apply it to yourself and you can. But this is not written to the church, it's written to Hebrews. And um, look at where he goes now. He's really focused on the Old Testament, this guy. But, uh, verse 1 of chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, this is Genesis 14, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, okay, that's what, Sedek is, is righteousness, okay, so you have Sadiq and Sedek and, and, and sorry? No, I just said, oh, yes, yeah, like that in cognates like that. They have to do with righteousness and, and the one that is righteous. Malki is the Hebrew term for king. Okay? So Malki, Sedek, king of righteousness. But also king of Salem, because that's what he was. He was the king of Salem. Meaning, king of peace. Salem, what's that sound like? Shalom. Shalom, you see? King of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy. That doesn't mean he didn't have a mum and dad. It just means that we don't know who they were. Okay? No genealogy. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Well, Hebrews are very concerned with genealogies. Gentiles aren't. So, neither beginning nor end. I mean, he just shows up and there's this little interchange and then that's it. This, but he's so important, why don't we know some more about, about him? I mean, as you said, Abraham, great man, offered tithes to this bloke. But we don't know anything about him. That's what he's saying there. Okay, So it's not saying that he's eternal. <clears throat> he's made like the Son of God. How do you think he's made like a Son of God? Well, it tells you. Remains a priest continually. It's not that he's a priest now, but the priesthood of Melchizedek is a continuing priesthood, do you see? Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. So, <clears throat> and it goes on, talks about Levi being in the loins of, uh, of Abraham. So, so, what's he trying to say? Well, Levi, he was the you know, the priesthood comes from Levi. So he's saying the priesthood of the Levites are basically say, paying homage or homage, I think you say it here, uh, to Melchizedek, who is a greater priest, therefore. You see, the priesthood of Melchizedek must be greater than the Levitical priesthood. 
That's the idea there. All right, so moving down here, talking about Christ being a priest forever, according to the Melchizedek, because he comes from Judah. He, he couldn't go through the Levitical line. Uh, it says here, verse 20, Inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath, by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110 again. Now, so have you got that? You got the fact that, that Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and now he's established that the Melchizedekian priesthood is is greater than the Levitical priesthood. Okay, now where's he going to go with this? Now, because he's talked about covenants, he's introduced covenants, he's talked about the law, he's already talked about Moses and his house, and then Christ and his house, hasn't he? He's already set you up for this discussion. And so he moves on and says in verse 22, so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Okay, a better covenant. Verse uh, 28. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. There's no weakness in Christ as the high priest, but he's a different high priest. Chapter 8. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. Would you want to get to the main point? (laughs) We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Chapter 1, chapter 1, it says here, I think, that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Remember that? A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Well, if he's in the right hand of God and he's a minister of the sanctuary, which is called the true tabernacle, where's the true tabernacle? Yes, it's got to be in heaven. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, therefore it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. We can't offer it in the uh, Levitical temple, folks. He's from Judah. He can't go into uh, the temple because he's not a Levitical high priest. He can't go in an earthly temple, do you see? So just think about that. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. Who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle for he said see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain so the tabernacle that Moses made the temple that Solomon built is a pattern of a real one it's just a copy the real one's in heaven you have a problem with that? some You'd be surprised how many Christians have a problem with that. Yeah, they have a real problem with the fact that there's a real temple in heaven and Christ is officiating in that temple in heaven. They do. A lot of them spiritualize that temple. 
Because it speaks strongly of the Jewishness. It, it does. It, it speaks strongly to how important the temple was uh, to Israel, do you see? That's what it was in terms of Yeah. God saying this is how it's done, right? It, well, yeah. Yeah. It also speaks to this, that there is some kind of a, and when I say cultish thing, or cultus, I don't mean like Jehovah's Witnesses and stuff. I mean, but there is a, a, a sacrificial cultus that's going on in heaven. Okay? Now remember that because he's going to mention this and it's, it, it, people don't like what the book of Hebrews says about it and they spiritualize it. But I'm, just, I'm just setting you up for that. Okay, keep going here. John? If, if, you under, if you read through the creation project, right, uh-huh. and every time God speaks to the prophet or anything, it's to, to show you the heart of God and all these things are brought up, uh-huh. all these sacrifices and everything, because that's, that's the heart of God. You have to understand that to even understand why Jesus needed to die on the cross. Yes, it is. The, the revelation of God is a revelation of his character. Right. So uh-huh. if you don't understand that, there's no reason that Christ had to die. Let's move on. Verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which is, was established on better promises. What is this better Covenant. He doesn't leave us guessing. He's going to quote, this is the longest quotation of the Old Testament that the New Testament gives us. And it's from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And that is the passage to do with the New Covenant. That's the better covenant. Folks, we've studied the New Covenant. I've told you that this is not the New Testament, folks. Okay? The New Testament is a bunch of books that mention the New Covenant. Okay? The Old Testament is just what we call the Old Testament, but it's not the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is mentioned in the Old Testament. But there are other things in the Old Testament, do you see, in the Hebrew Bible, that are not part of the Old Covenant. Like the Abrahamic Covenant, for example, and stuff. But you'd be surprised how many people, you know, think it's the Old Testament and the New Testament here. I mean, it's daft, but, but they just bring their presuppositions to, to it. He's talking about the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31. And uh, he says here, verse 7, If that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. But obviously it wasn't. You've been told the priests were weak. This priest isn't weak. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, now look, look at what's included here. I'm not going to read the whole thing because you can, you know this passage. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah and just stop right there. Why does he say that? Why don't you just clip that little bit off? Cut and paste, dude. Why do we need uh, Israel and Judah mentioned? Okay? We're talking church here, aren't we? Why bring Israel and Judah into it? Because this is written to Hebrews. That's why. Because Jeremiah was writing to them. Because it hasn't changed. And because I told you that the new covenant is made with Israel when? When is the new covenant made with Israel? 
when the kingdom comes. The second coming of Christ. The kingdom is near. Yes, remember even Romans 11? Okay? New Covenant passage is quoted to you when the uh, Gentiles have been done away with and he turns again to Israel. Okay? It's second coming of Christ. So, so the New Covenant has been made with the church at the first coming of Christ. Pentecost and all of those that, that believe. But it's not been made with Israel and won't be until they look on him and they pierced and repent. Zechariah. Yes, the remnant. Yes, this is what Jeremiah is talking about. If you look in the context of Jeremiah, which we spent a long time doing, I know it was a long time ago, but in Jeremiah 30 through 33, I showed you again and again, the context is the second coming. I showed you in Ezekiel 36 and 37, context, second coming, Ezekiel's temple, kingdom age, 40 through 48. I showed you in uh, Isaiah, Isaiah 11, okay, and Isaiah 62, and well, loads of places. It's second coming. And unless you, you divide that, that out, realizing that the new covenant's made with the church at the first coming, but not made with Israel until the second coming, you'll not understand a lot of the prophecies of the Bible. Israel's in unbelief. So, uh, the focus here is on Israel, and that's why Israel and Judah are still mentioned here. Verse 14, 13. 13, chapter 8. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Okay, yes, one sec, because I might answer it. Um, Here's the thing, the New Testament says again and again and again, Paul says, we're not under the law. Okay, we're not under the law. So what what do I need to be told this for? that the Old Covenant is, is vanishing away. Well, as far as I'm concerned, I, I, I'm not under the law. Okay? I'm not under the law. I certainly, there are universal principles, nine of the Ten Commandments are universal commandments. It's never good to steal. Okay? It's never good to bear false witness. Well, you can say in certain circumstances the Bible does talk about that and Hebrews will talk about that but generally it's never right to lie it's never right to be an idolater or to commit adultery or to you know disobey your parents or anything like that dishonor your parents it's never good to do that dishonor your parents Uh, sometimes you do have to disobey them because they are dishonoring God but not to dishonor your parents. It's never good. These are universal principles. They never die. So you're, you're always under those. But as far as all the other bits in the law, I'm not worried about that. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not under them. I'm under grace. So why is he talking here as if that the old is becoming, is vanishing away? It's ready to vanish away because the focus so far in this book has been what? The Jews. The Jews and 
the world to come, the age to come, the eschaton, hasn't it? The kingdom to come. Laboring to enter that. Do you see that? Yeah, the superiority of, of Christ to, to all else. Yes. And the, the superiority of the kingdom. That, that right. So, moving on, chapter 9. We can do this. Yes, John, sorry. Um, when he referred to the first covenant, what is he talking about? That's the Mosaic covenant, because he's already spoken about Moses, and he's spoken about um, uh, the Levitical priesthood. And the law, he's spoken about the law several times. I haven't actually highlighted where he spoke about the law, so but he has done. He's just, the law, so the Mosaic Covenant is talking about the promised land. The Mosaic Covenant uh, speaks about the promised land, but what it does is it, they're in the promised land. Okay? And they enter into a unilateral agreement together. It's in uh, Exodus 34. Uh, 24, where, um, remember Moses reads from the book. In fact, he's going to talk about it in a minute. Can I wait? Can I do that? Because he's going to answer that question. Okay. I was just going to, my question was, uh, the old has become obsolete. Earlier in the class, you mentioned that the covenants, he's still going to fulfill all the covenants. But not the Mosaic covenant. He won't fulfill the Mosaic covenant because the Mosaic covenant is deliberately temporary. And remember I said that in the, old, in the uh, class when we were looking at the Pentateuch. I said, this one is a unilateral one. It's not, un- it's not yeah. unconditional. It's conditional. And they broke it. That's right. I already remember that. Okay. Yeah, because it says if there's nothing wrong with that one, but in fact there was fault, and it was the people. Yes. Broke it. Yes. Yeah. So, chapter 9. Right. Thank you. No, no problem. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances and divine service and an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared in the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, and what, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. Uh, do you realize how Jewish this is? It's not churchy at all, is it? Which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which there were the <coughs> golden pot, which had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part of the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself, and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Now he's going to focus on the conscience here. Okay, It's not about outward um, ceremonial obedience about the conscience concerned only with foods and drinks various washings and fleshly ordinances opposed to p- until the time of reformation what does it mean a time of reformation yeah I think so but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come 
with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is not of this creation. There is a tabernacle in heaven. (laughs) Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place, once for all having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and of the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. There's a wonderful Trinitarian verse for you there. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. So he's spoken about the new covenant in a previous chapter with the Jeremiah quotation. Now Christ is called the mediator of the new covenant. By means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. The law condemns us. Paul says that, remember? That those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Is that heaven? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not. Okay. Now we're going to get into translation troubles. So I'm going to read the next two verses slowly and you're going to tell me if you have a different translation okay for where there is a testament there must also of necessity be the death of a testator for a testament is in force after men are dead since it has no power at all while the testator lives do you have a different translation who has a different translation Nobody? No, American Standard says, for we're a covenant. Ah, see, the New American Standards doesn't translate it testament. It translates it covenant. Mm-hmm. Mine says a will. Okay, what have you got? ESV? Uh, NIV. NIV, all right. Well, yeah. So, um. <laughs> Sorry. It's all right. So, um, anyway. Moving on. The, the Greek word that's used is diatheke, okay? And um, it's the, the idea, this, this word dia means through, like diagram, you know, diameter, you know, it means through, okay? So the idea is that uh, it's between two parties. That's why it's uh, cut through, you see? Uh, there is such a thing as a suntheki, which is uh, just a, a one, uh, a covenant of one. This is this is technically a covenant of two in a sense, agreement of two. But um, this is the the word that is always used in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament, the LXX, sometimes wrongly called the Septuagint, but. Um, that's this is the the word that always translates covenant in the Old Testament. Okay, um, the writer of the Hebrews actually quotes the LXX in chapter one, 
Okay, when it says, oh, let the angels of God worship him, that's a quotation directly from uh, the LXX in Deuteronomy 32. Um, so he knows the LXX. He knows that diatheke is, means covenant. Moreover, that same word is translated covenant everywhere else in the book of Hebrews. Why haven't the translators translated it as covenant in these two verses? What went wrong with them, you see? We know that when he's talking about the Mosaic covenant, the first covenant, or the new covenant, the new diatheke, yes? That, that word means covenant. That's the way you've got to translate it. What is, what is stopping them from translating it as covenant now? I'll tell you, it's because of what it says about the covenant or about the diatheke. Because it says, verse 16, where there is a testament, there also must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Okay, I mean, translated testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. That's why you have will. Because when we make wills, okay, you've got to die before people inherit it, okay? Anyone ever read The Prodigal Son? Yeah, he wasn't dead. His father wasn't dead, but he didn't, he wanted his inheritance. Do you know why? Because in the ancient world, that was what? A, 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 testament or the inheritance could be had before the person died I mean in other words this is a modern view of a will and testament that's been read back into the ancient world but that's not what a will and testament was in the ancient world do you see so what about um, the time when this was written but this is the ancient world. This is AD 58. No, AD 68, sorry. So if you About. take the direct translation, it doesn't have that there must also be a death of the testament. No, it just says this word diatheke. And uh, uh, I'm going to now translate it a different way. And again, this is the way people like Guthrie and now other people have gone on board, P.T. O'Brien is Hebrews commentary, Van Hoy and, and a number of others have seen this and have said, hold on a minute, you can't do this. You can't say diatheke equals covenant, diatheke equals covenant, diatheke equals covenant. And then all, all of a sudden for two verses, diatheke equals testament, as in last will and testament. You can't do that. The writer doesn't use a different word and he's... Moreover, he's not talking about a last will and testament. He's talking about covenants all the way through here. This is a translation error. This is where translators are actually reading their own ideas and prejudices into the text instead of just translating it. Let's translate it using the word covenant. Well, let's translate it using the Greek that was written. Yeah, diatheke, meaning covenant. Okay, so... So are you um, saying those, the rest of the sentence isn't even in the original translation? No, I'm saying that they've, they have uh, translated it incorrectly. And now we're going to use the word covenant okay. and see how it comes out. And so, uh, uh, Zeke, can you read out from uh, 
the NASB, mm-hmm. uh, what it says in those two verses. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Okay. Now, that's much closer translation. At least it goes off of the covenant. It hasn't quite got it, but it's close. What has been said about Jesus? Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Verse 15, how? How? By means of death. By means of death. Okay, remember that. Let's go to the very next verse. For where there is a covenant, there must also of necessity be the death of the it's the animal that makes the covenant. Okay? The thing that makes the covenant. Do you see? Yeah, that's why they used to split the calf and they walk between it or something like that, right? Or, yeah, or, or there'd be a, a covenant animal. The, the, uh, um, the goats that were, were... Well, no, he's going to go on to that, so I don't need to go on to that right now. But, but uh, you see the point. Jesus has been the mediator of the new covenant through death. Where there's a covenant, there has to be death. The death of the covenant animal. For a covenant is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the covenant animal lives. Do you see? When you do that, it fits the context because Christ made the new covenant through his death. That's what he's been talking about all this time. You, you use the word the same way. You don't just jump interpretive horses, horses for two verses and then go back on the covenant trail again. After that, you stick to the same translation. And it makes sense. Moreover, let's read, because we've seen how this guy develops arguments and he's really good at it, let's see how he develops his argument and see if this makes sense. Verse 8, 18, sorry. Therefore, not even the first, now the word covenant is supplied there, not even the first was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, this is Exodus 24, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Well, why does he translate it testament? It's the same word as verses 16 and 17 because it can't be translated testament because you know jolly well that this is the Mosaic covenant. Do you see? Then likewise he sprinkled the blood with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry and according to the law almost all things are purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. Okay. Following the argument Remember what he said about the uh, Christ high priest in a tabernacle verse 18 not made with hands? Not of this creation, verse 18, verse 11. Okay, read down. Verse 23. Therefore, 
it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He's the covenant animal. He's the the animal, the covenant that dies. I've told you, folks, you don't have to... Some. I have to say that this is an unusual teaching. I think it's absolutely biblical and right, and I can back it up. But because people are not reading carefully and not focusing on the covenants, okay, they miss this stuff. And that sounds, I sound like I should write a book and, you know, say, yeah, I found a clue to everything in the universe. But um, I don't mean it that way. All I'm saying is, honestly, I've read covenant theologians. I've read dispensationalists and they're both looking the wrong way. I've learned from both of them. Okay? I've learned from both of them but the fact of the matter is they're looking the wrong way. Jesus is the new covenant. I've told you that. Jesus is the animal. He lays down himself. He is the new covenant. Do you see that? Why is that so hard? It's like the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Because they, they are not focusing on the covenants, do you see? And they're not tying Christ into it. So what are they meaning? What are they meaning? Well, here they understand that Jesus is the animal. You know, they're starting to see that. But what they're not prepared to say is Jesus is the new covenant. Well, he himself is yes, yes, but I've already, I think I've shown you that he says, uh, this is my, this is the blood of the new covenant that is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49 both say, I will make you, the servant, a covenant for the people and that the context is redemption, salvation. I will make you a covenant. He's the covenant. If you make him the covenant, do you see, that means anyone of any age who is saved is saved because of the merits of Christ. And it also means this, and I think this is the, um, this is the thing that excites me. Maybe I'm getting excited because I'm, you know, I'm one of these people that gets excited at my own discoveries, which are not really discoveries. That's possible. But, uh, it excites me because what it tells me is that the promises of God that are unilaterally promised by God, he puts, you know, I mean, Noah can't do anything about stopping a flood, can he? Um, Abraham's put to sleep. Uh, Phineas didn't know he was going to get a, uh, an everlasting covenant when he stabbed those two people. 
David just wanted to build a house, a, a temple. God made a covenant with him. They didn't do anything. That's God being gracious. So, those covenants that God obligated himself to fulfill, the problem with them is that you can't fulfill them on sinners. You have to redeem them. So, the new covenant is the covenant that makes sure that everyone is washed clean, is redeemed, and then there's nothing to stop God fulfilling the covenants literally. So, the way that I diagram it is, uh, so there's the Noahic, uh, the Abrahamic, uh, the uh, Davidic, priestly, priestly, okay, so these are the main ones, and they all are unilateral covenants. Okay, there are conditions on them, okay, but the conditions aren't part of the oaths of the covenant. So God, God has to fulfill them. And he doesn't have to fulfill them until the conditions are fulfilled, but he has to fulfill them. Do you see? So, here's Christ, and Christ is the new covenant. So all of these covenants go through Christ. You see? But once they meet Christ, this is where uh, this is where everyone gets messed up. They come out with a lot of theologies and they come out different. It's well, like the whole reason we can approach the throne of grace. Yeah, because but it's of Christ. There but, would be no approaching. That's true, but but I'm I'm thinking bigger here. These covenants, remember, covenants can't change. They're the end of arguments. The, the writer of the Hebrews has told you that. They're the end of all disagreement. So what means is Christ brings redemption, cleansing. When he brings cleansing and redemption, that means that these covenants can be all Literally fulfilled. Do you see? Mm-hmm. Not transformed, no. not spiritualized. No. Replacement. None of that. God's, this is God's plan, and it's all through Christ. So the, Israel gets what's promised to it, the church gets what's promised to it you'll find the nations will get what's promised to them as well. This is the genius of putting Christ at the center of things. This is the great interpretative key of the Bible, I believe. Okay, The covenants go through Christ and you don't change them. That's why you can have a literal interpretation of the promises to Israel. That's why you can have a literal interpretation. All they're waiting for is redemption. So, moving on here, um, go a few more minutes, okay? Which, which doesn't mean that really, but. <coughs> so, 
he's saying here that he's... Look at verse 26. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of, of himself as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, second coming, apart from sin for salvation. What's the apart from sin? You mean he was with sin before? No, but he appears a second time and sin has been done away with. He comes as the resurrected saviour having dealt with the sin problem. Do you see? All right, moving along here really quick. Can we do this? Have you can take a couple of deep breaths here? All right. Chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, how is it a shadow? Well, the temple was a shadow. What's it? That's his, he's talking about the, the cultic part of the law here. Can never with those same sacrifices, which they offer a continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then they would, not, uh, would they not have been ceased to be offered. But the worshippers, once purified, would have, would have had no consciousness of sins. And so on. And it talks about what the Day of Atonement was for. And now it, uh, it comes into Christ, um, what Christ did in himself. So verse 10. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, which is where chapter 1 puts in. Do you see? For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And then look at... uh, Verses 16 through 17 uh, is again uh, quoting from Jeremiah 31, the New Covenant. Um, So then verse 19. Boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. He's got a new and living way consecrated for us through the veil. That is, his flesh. That's what people don't like. See, Christ offered his blood, according to the Hebrews, offered his blood in heaven. He had to have something to offer, didn't it? Didn't he say that? Everyone who, who uh, ministers at the earthly sanctuary has something to offer. Christ offered at a better sacri- uh, sanctuary. He offered his own blood there. Do you see? Now, please, don't. Uh, people say, well, are you saying that all the blood that dribbled down, you know, the size of Jesus, that he gathered it all up and flew off to heaven with it? You know, please understand that we're dealing with divine things here, you know. Um, Jesus didn't have to take all of his blood up to heaven. He just needed to be there as the sacrifice. But it was a bloody sacrifice. When he stood in front of his father, he was a bloody sacrifice. Do 
Do you see? That's what he's talking about. And there's a sacrifice for, uh, for us. And that's why he says that we can have assurance to draw near verse 22 of chapter 10, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so, um, he says we've got to exhort one another, verse 25, so much as you, uh, the more as you see the day approaching. And there's the eschatology again. Have you know, did you ever notice how eschatological the book of Hebrews was? How it was focused on entering into rest, focusing on the, the world to come, focusing on the day to come? It focuses on that. But we're in chapter 10. We're in dangerous territory again because, verse 26, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Uh Uh-oh, we're back in Hebrews 6 again, aren't we? But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' Lord dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more, sorry, how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant? Which covenant? The The new covenant. The blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. Again, what are we going to do with this? Are we going to say this is written to a Christian? Well, we could, but most interpreters who believe you can't lose your salvation, they can't do that. Okay? It messes with their theology. It messes with my theology because I don't believe I can lose my salvation. For all kinds of reasons. So that way is not open to them, do you see? The only alternative for those people, it, well, they've, they've, because we're in the age of euphemisms and, and um, stuff like that, they've come up with another way. But the only other way really is to say that this is professing Christians. They're not really Christians. Because if they were really Christians, then they can't lose their salvation because nothing separates us from the love of God. It's in Christ Jesus, you see. But since we know that's true, this can't be written to real Christians. Therefore, these, Christ- these people are not real Christians. They're just professing Christians. But it's not. It doesn't say that. Nowadays, what some of the reform guys come up with is, yeah, you can't lose your salvation, but, uh, but this is to threaten you. This is kind of, this is divine saber rattling, okay? Yeah, it's, it's divine saber rattling to make you just, you know, even though you can't lose your salvation, it, it kind of makes you half feel that you can. You can't, but then you uh, warn that you can. Which to me, that's a, that's a pointless warning because I'm sorry, I'm, I'm dumb enough to think that I can't and it doesn't matter how much you warn me that I can, I can't. So, Otherwise, tough. It is disingenuous. Do you see, they make God disingenuous again. 
they make him threaten us when with with nothing. It's a, it's actually an empty threat. They try by because they put words together in the right way, like politicians. They try and make it not an empty threat, but it is an empty threat because I can't lose my salvation. Which means that if you're going to warn me like this, it's like ho hum. I'm sorry, I don't want to. I don't want to sound glib, but really, it's ho hum to me. You're not going to threaten me with a verse like this. I'm going to say, sorry, you're not interpreting this right. Yeah. It does say you can lose your salvation. It's not written to me. Um, possibly. That's a good question, actually. Possibly. Remember I said to you when we were going through Matthew, I said that, you remember it says, uh, he that endures to the end shall be saved. And a lot of people say, yeah, that means that um, you endure until you've finished enduring and then you'll be saved. And they say it's, you're safe physically. Why do they say safe physically? He that endures to the end shall be saved. Jehovah's Witnesses will quote you that. Why does a Christian say that's not talking about salvation, that's talking about just physical salvation? You know, it's not talking about the soul salvation. No? Bit late. Okay. It's, uh, it's because that's work salvation, folks. He that endures to the end shall be saved. Okay, so I just need to endure, do you see? Yeah. And I'll be saved. That's work salvation. So they say, well, it's not salvation of the soul that he's talking about. It's just salvation of the body. But then what do they do? They make it a tautology. He that endures and gets through it will be physically have endured it, you know, and got through it. It's a tautology. They make Jesus guilty of a tautology. Jesus doesn't mean, no, you're going to get through it that way. He means saved as in your soul is saved. But he does mean endure. And the context is the tribulation. And the context is Israel. And that fits this. That fits the argument of this book. With the focus on its coming. We're going to enter into rest. You know, it's difficult, but keep your eye on Christ. But if you, if you go back, you've lost it just like those that didn't make it into the promised land the first time because they were disobedient. They didn't endure. Uh, I remind you that earlier on, chapter 3, verse 6, that he says that uh, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. That's almost like he then endures to the end shall be saved. So is he referring to endure to, to save a remnant? I think that that fits this perfectly, hand in glove. So it's not salvation as in your soul, it's... No, it is it's soul salvation. To it is the soul salvation. 
Yeah, but the soul salvation is here predicated not on believing that Jesus died and rose again and you're put into the body of Christ, the church. Here, salvation is predicated on you obeying and it's predicated on you um, you're striving towards, not looking back, striving, enduring. My take on this, and I've got to stop, because we can pick this up next time. But chapter 11, you, know, you all know about chapter 11, the faith chapter. By faith they did this, and they did that, and they did that. It's not by faith, well, Abraham is by faith he believed, but then he did something. Faith, it is faith and works, folks. <laughs> Hebrews 11 is faith and works. So is that if we, in verse 26, if we're reading this as Hebrews, then we're, that's referring to Hebrews. Yes, at the end of the ages. Can you think of a time, if you've read Matthew 24, if you've read um, Jeremiah 30, if you've read Daniel 7, if you've read Daniel 12, if you've read, um, have I said Matthew 24 already? Yeah. Luke 21. Uh, can you think of a time when Israel will have to endure? Tribulation. The tribulation. The tribulation. The time of Jacob's trouble. Okay? The time that Jesus warned Israel about. You don't have to go there with me, okay? You can, uh, you can just walk off in the other direction and say this is all the church and that's fine, okay? But I'm sticking my neck out here and I, it might get chopped off, but that's fine. Um, this is written to Hebrews. Why would you think that every book in the New Testament is written to the church? If, you be, we believe that there is going to be a 70th year, uh, week of Daniel's prophecy that is upon Daniel's people, Israel, and Daniel's city, Jerusalem. If we really believe that, why would it be so surprising that there wouldn't be a book written to Jews in the tribulation? Does God care for the Jews? Kind of, doesn't he? Why would you think, and this, this is, if you look at this and you, you think tribulation and you think Matthew 24 and you think Old Testament, this fits remarkably well. Then the language of warning fits. Then it doesn't conflict with Paul because it's not, he's not writing to the same people as Paul. Do you see that? And you're going to say, yeah, but it's written during the church age. No, no you're not. Okay. Well, <laughs> it's written during the church age. Yeah, well, so is, uh, so is Matthew 24, written in during the church age. doesn't mean it's written to the church. Okay? I mean, you, you've got to have, you can't have people writing new scriptures, you know, uh, throughout church history. Even Revelation is mainly. It, it, well, we're going to get to the book of Revelation and we're going to see how this fits pretty well. Because you're going to see after chapter 11 of the book of Revelation, there's going to be a repetition of something about those that keep the commandments of God and faith of Jesus Christ. 
So in those the two things. In the Old Testament, Israel was saved through their works. No, nobody's saved through works. Nobody's saved through works. You're always saved through grace. Okay? But the way grace is received is different in in different eras. Uh, How did Abraham receive grace? By believing on Jesus Christ or by by believing that that, um, his seed would be like the stars of the in the heavens you see it's faith by grace through faith you see and he had to believe how was Moses saved by building a boat um, I mean Noah him yeah too um, so um, they did put him in a boat but that's before he could believe unless he were a Peter Baptist and yeah anyway um, so what they believed was different. Do you see? Did the thief on the cross believe that Jesus rose from the dead? No, he just believed that he was innocent. He just believed that he was he was a sinner and wanted and believed that he was the Son of God. Well, I'm sorry, you believe that Jesus is a sinner and that um, he's the Son of God. That ain't going to save you today you've got to believe that he died for your sins on the cross and that he rose again for your justification I'm sorry if this messes you up I'm sorry about that I can't you know I'm not I'm not an ultra dispensationalist chopping and I'm just saying that people are saved the content of faith changes depending on the revelation if I, if uh, pre-tribulationism is right, if it's right, didn't we do some of that last week? Yeah. Um, if that's correct, then um, the church is not here. So anybody who goes through tribulation, they can't go, can't join the church. Well, how do you get in the church by believing Paul's gospel? But Paul's gospel is no good for you in the tribulation because the church is gone so you don't get connected to the body of Christ because the church the body of Christ is gone moreover Jesus in Matthew 24 says that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached and the gospel of the kingdom in Matthew 24 in Matthew 20, in Matthew <laughs> Matthew 2 and 3 and Matthew 10 is the kingdom's coming that fits this. That fits. Do you see? That's a different good news. So we're saying for a different time. Yes. Okay. That's that's. So I was having a hard part of saying. Well, right now today, a Jew next to me has a different way than I do. That's right. But that's not true. That's not that's today. Not what I'm today, no, because you weren't here last week. You see, that's the problem. You were Peter Panning, but. <laughs> But, um, what I was saying is that now there's neither Jew nor Gentile in the church. They're all one. So, any Jew that, is, that comes to Christ is included in the church. Okay? The body of Christ. They're, they're bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. There are some people that teach that Jews are, are saved 
they're placed into the body of Christ and then when the kingdom comes, they're taken out of the body of Christ and put into Israel again. I don't see any warrant for that in scripture and I think it's theologically weird. Um, but at the same time, I'm, what I've tried to do with Hebrews is I've tried to take these passages seriously and I've tried to look at this the day approaching, the, the world to come, entering into rest. And I've tried to, to uh, figure out where it goes. If you put it in the tribulation, it's surprising how well it goes. You can have all of the teaching. It applies to you. As far as the, the high priest and going boldly to the throne of grace, you can do all of that. You don't lose any of that. Because it's true. But then there's some stuff that you don't want to be true of you, like losing your salvation. Do you see? Some stuff that says we're striving to enter rest. Well, I'm not striving to enter anything. And that's what I'm trying to, to say here. Now, could I be wrong? Yes, I could be wrong. Okay? So I've spent uh, an awful lot of time here telling you something that could be a load of nonsense. But... I, I only am telling it to you because it, um, it's remarkable how well it fits in with the covenantal program that I've been trying to teach you. And uh, if we believe that this writer really knows how to put across what he means and build an argument, um, then we cannot explain away his threatenings, his warnings, which are constant throughout the epistle. We've got to take him at face value, which means that he does conflict with the Apostle Paul. Unless he's right to a Hebrews. Saved and lost. Uh, but as a group. Um, in verse 39... He says, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Their belief is its contingent. You see, you have to keep believing. If they don't believe, they're going to lose their, soul, their salvation. You see that, verse 39? And uh, uh, chapter 12 Verse 24, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling which speaks better things than that of Abel, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. Who's the one who speaks according to Hebrews 1? Christ. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall they not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. And who is it? Second coming passage, verse 26. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised saying, yet once more I shake, not only the earth, but also the heavens. That's the second coming passage. Who is the one who speaks? Probably here, Christ. Do you see?
So, um, I need to I need to stop. And we, thank you for your um, for your. Um, I've lost my concentration, but thanks for yours. Um, we have to do chapter thirteen next week because there are some things in there, uh, and in chapter eleven also that we need to address, and then we can move on. So we're going to do that next week. Okay. So I want you to read from uh, Hebrews chapter 11 through to the end of Hebrews. You will see a mention of the church. You'll see a mention of some other things and that we can deal with those. And then if you can read First uh, Peter as well. Second Peter would be good too. <clears throat> All right, so that's for next for next week. Uh, in closing, again, I just want to emphasize here that if you don't want to accept what I've been foisting on you, um, the way that I've interpreted the book of Hebrews, that's fine. Okay, you'll be definitely in the majority. Um, sorry? <laughs> no, not at all. Um, but just consider what I'm saying and why I'm saying it. Okay? If Hebrews was an Old Testament book, you wouldn't have a problem. I, I do know that it speaks about Christ having um, died and, and so on. It doesn't really say an awful lot about the resurrection, which is kind of surprising. Its, it's focus is the second coming. That's the kingdom. Yeah, we talked about how the Old Testament just sort of skips over the church. Yeah. Right? It talks about the second coming, right? Yeah, which fit, isn't it? First and second are just kind of one thing. Yes. Really. And the new covenant is made with Israel at the second coming. And that fits this. That's, that's, why, that's why my thoughts tended towards this. Because I'd been... Um, I mean, this is not the first time I've taught this heresy. But... Um, but my thoughts started to drift that way because I'd, I was teaching this stuff about these, these passages, New Covenant passages, they're all second coming passages. Matthew 24, second coming passage, enduring to the end, Jews. Um, it fits Hebrews. Do you see? It just, that's, the, that's why I started to think this way. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But there's more to come. Because <laughs> when I get to the book of Revelation, I'll show you again this motif. So just think about it. Um, and, uh, you know, if there's a, a gossip going around Redwood Valley and Ukiah and Willets about Henry's heresies, then <laughs> it'll be one of you. Okay. <laughs> Just, I, I, I just um, hope that you weren't the least considerate. Okay. <laughs>